All right, we're rolling now. Counting us down. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hello there, Misketeers. Welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I'm Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies, music, television, spoken word, experiences, things that have built us up as people. And in sharing it, we hope that it builds you up. We're the retrospective that's introspective. Tari J, you just created a very pretty visual image with all manner of craftsmanship on display in the frame. Yes, that's how I get my DP on. Hell yeah. Ew, all right. Ew. I love a good DP. Ew. All right. We're sorry, folks. This this show is canceled now. <laughs> we're, no, no one can stop me. We're pulling the plug. It's been a great run, and thank you for supporting us. This is the final missing out. I am disgusted. I am offended. My childhood has been ruined. That's uh, That's what I'm all about. Uh, but maybe you, we will be redeemed. Save my childhood. When we introduce our guest for today, Colin P. McDonald. Hello, everyone. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Colin, who are who am you? I? Who are you? Account for yourself. That's a good question. Uh, I am, uh, originally from Ohio, you know, I came out here to California to join the film industry, go to school out here, and, and kind of just uh, see where I can fit into this interesting, um, very interesting industry we work in. And where, where did you find yourself in the industry? What do you do? I, uh, I work for Panavision, so I work with cameras and lenses. Um, I am a product strategist for Panavision, so we do... Um, all of our new cameras, our new various different cages and products for other cameras. Um, we do work with some lenses, and obviously the company uh, is all about lenses. My specific job is more cameras and, and um, sort of post. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I love all things camera and, and uh, sort of behind-the-scenes related. Uh, on top of which, you are yourself a cinematographer. Yeah. A particularly gifted cinematographer, if I may. Thank uh, you. I've worked with Colin a number of times, and no, you're, you're, uh, you, you don't suck at it, sir. Yeah, I, I definitely <laughs> think, like, you know, part of what I realized when I was first working as an AC and as a DP, just totally freelance, it's such an industry and such a business that I was like, I kind of want to keep the art the artistic value that i that i find interesting i want to keep that as a passion and not as a profession and so i i sort of found myself working at panavision doing you know the sort of the tech side but then on the side i was able to do projects where i don't have to worry about okay am i going to make money from this am i going to you know have to support whatever from this it's like i can keep this as a passion and so i can choose projects that i have interest in and that i think is going to creatively you know get the juices going so that's kind of the direction that i i found myself taking nice um yeah so speaking of things that that you have interest in i think something that everybody is a little bit interested in this week in particular 
Uh, I don't know if you heard. It's it's only open in limited release. You may have to drive a little bit out of your way to go see it. But there's a, a little movie, a little space movie called Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. Now, we, uh, you may have heard Tari and I talk about it yesterday on Missing Out Monday. We did the better part of an hour, totally spoilery breakdown of our feelings about the movie. But today, what we want to talk about, we want to do something uh, a little bit different. We want to talk about Star Wars, yeah. But we're not going to be talking about Rise of Skywalker today. We're going to be talking about all of Star Wars. Yes, every Star Wars, everything through the prism of its cinematography, right? So yeah. I guess where we want to start, because I want to talk to you, Colin, about the cinematography of Star Wars, but I also want to talk to you a little bit about your personal journey. That's something that I personally like to do on this show a whole bunch. It's like, okay, let's talk about a thing that you love, but let's also talk about your journey and what part that thing plays in it. So I guess I want to go back to the beginning like let's start start there right this let's do your phantom menace let's do the prequel to your prequel where do where does star wars come in for you a and b let's go back even further than that where does film come in for you if you remember because for me i can barely remember a time i know yeah movies or star yeah. wars mm -hmm. but if you can come if, if there's a point in time that sort of speaks to you that you can go oh that if not that kind of like that moment where was that for you that sort of uh, uh, ushered you in this direction? I mean, I think it was definitely like early elementary school, you know, like second grade, first grade. I was shooting little short films, working. I had two friends um, that we would write little scripts and we would shoot things. Um, we started shooting just on like high eight tape. So we had, there was no editing. We just would have to shoot and rewind and re-record over whatever we were shooting, you know, to, mm -hmm. to sort of make the scenes cut together. Um, but uh, I, I don't really know where the specific point of, like, why I got into it, but I just, I always loved making little short films. And so I think right. Star Wars obviously came into play as, like, that's the epitome of, of filmmaking, and specifically because I was always interested in, like, action-adventure kind of movies. Right. So... That's what my movies were always about. Is is uh, you're following a character and he's you know going on an adventure and he's fighting bad guys and he's, um, yeah, just kind of experiencing you know the world around him. And so um, I think Star Wars specifically for me was I remember watching like VHS copies, um, specifically Empire. I remember watching. I, I I don't remember if I saw that first or if I just just empire like really stood out to me um at my great aunt's house we would go down there and we would have like like the whole family would get together and so i remember watching star wars in this setting of like just family and like just a very f familial experience of like we were watching this together and this was sort of the adventure that we're going on in this you know and it was always like a trip to get down to my great aunt's house so it was it was always a, a family related thing so definitely good memories of of star wars for that for that sense so two questions uh one about how old were you i would say i was probably six or seven six or seven yeah okay. second question you said you watched them on VHS. Yes. Which editions of the VHS copies were they? Because I had about three different versions of the original trilogy on VHS. They were they were definitely the original trilogy, like the the non pre, non um, special edition trilogy. Did you have so, the ones where they were all like they were in the 
the kind of slip case for all three of them, and then they were all it was uh, a black black set. Yeah, yeah. Darth Vader's on Mm -hmm. the first one. Stormtrooper Mm -hmm. on the second one. Yoda on on Jedi. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had that one as well. Yeah. (laughs) So I remember then watching later the the special editions, and that I don't think I I don't remember seeing those in the theater, but I remember watching them later and saying like, wait, what is this? Right. This is a different movie from what I'm you know watched as a kid. So. Yeah, definitely remember the uh, those VHS box set. Well, so let's let's dig into that a little bit because we we want to start with the original trilogy. What was it? Do you remember were there specific images at the time that really grabbed you in particular? Right, because there, there was always I feel like, especially when you come to Star Wars very young, the way I did, the way you did, mm-hmm. I feel like it's the aesthetics of Star Wars that grab you first, whether yeah. it's the, yeah. the designs of the ships or the aliens or the planets or the music, whatever it is. Yeah. So uh, for you, are there images uh, that go, that sort of go back to that place for you, that origin point? Like, was there something that you went, oh, wow, look at that. Mm-hmm. How can I make that happen? Yeah, I mean, the first, like I said, the first time I remember, truly remember Star Wars is Empire, at the very beginning, they're on Hoth, like Han Solo's trying to fix the ship before they're heading out, and uh, I remember my cousin um, saying, like, she didn't realize, we were both, you know, probably six, seven, eight, um, and she was like, that's Harrison Ford? Like, she didn't know that was Harrison Ford, and I remember her saying, like, I, I guess what that implies is that you know, we were always a family of, of movies. So we were always seeing different movies. And so, you know, to sort of connect the dots of, you know, who these actors are, who these um, characters were, you know, you see them in other films. And so we're always talking about how they how they interact. And so that obviously implies a behind the scenes kind of look into Star Wars. And mm-hmm. so it was like, we were talking about the actors as as important. And so... I think filmmaking for me became that kind of, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. In addition to, you know, just the visuals and the actual story content, um, the behind the scenes was equally as important for me as as the, the story itself. Right. And I am so, if you listen to this show, and, and Tari, I know you don't need to be told, I like, I like movies a lot. Uh, learning about the creative process and the technical process that... Uh, leads to what you end up seeing on screen Uh, all of that information is like candy to me Mm -hmm. especially when it is something like the original star wars trilogy where and it's truly unfortunate the uh, that the original unaltered versions are not more easily accessible but all of the different types of craftsmanship on display within every frame of the original star wars trilogy you have moving camera shots where you have a miniature of say like the death star surface Mm -hmm. and you also have miniature model ships flying through dogfighting with each other and they're compositing all of these physical elements into a single frame with camera movement that's bonkers to me personally uh so Let's talk about the first the first movie, right? Let's break down the original trilogy. Well, before we jump into specifics, I want to take this moment to drop down the spoiler wall. Let's say that you've never seen a never Star Wars. Never seen War. Star Wars. That's fair. Um, and there are people who haven't. Yep. So um, from this point on, I think uh, we will be talking about all aspects of Star Wars. Uh, not necessarily the most recent one. If you want to hear about the most recent one, you can go back to yesterday's Yeah, episode. we're definitely not going to be spoiling the new movie. But uh, we will be talking about all the movies leading up to it. 
Um, so this is your chance to jump out and come back after you've seen Star Wars. Or this is your chance to be like, I'm going to cross the threshold and I'm going to go into this chat fully knowing where I stand. Um, so this is your chance uh, while you're here. Hey, uh, why don't you subscribe? You know, get this in your feed every Tuesday. Also, you know, if you like what we're doing, why don't you uh, throw us a rating or review? Let us know what you like about it so that we can keep doing that. Um, and we can share it here on the show. Uh, Five-star ratings we read on the show itself. You get a little shout-out, which is nice. Um, and that's, that's how we win. Not by downvoting what we hate, but by upvoting what we love. Aw, so true. Very well said. Smooch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so we're going to dive in right after this message. Can Harry Potter cast a spell on Black Widow's heart? Would the doctor and Niles Crane write a prescription for love? Do Cthulhu and Godzilla have compatible genitals? These are the questions you should be ashamed for asking. But if you want answers, listen to Ships in the Night. It's a fanfic podcast where we put two fictional characters into a relationship and figure out what would happen if they bumped uglies. Ships in the Night. Listen every Tuesday. But listen quietly. It's super not safe for work. All right. We're back, and we were just about to jump into episode one. Or actually, no. The episode first four, Star Wars, yeah. Episode four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The first. The original. The first movie, which is also the fourth movie. Which is also the first movie. Yes, of course. <laughs> totally makes sense. So, all right. Uh, let's, let's jump into the first movie because you, you sent me ahead of this conversation a whole bunch of information that I am not. I just, my, my little reptile pea brain could not process all of the information that you were throwing at me. So I want to talk to you about uh, the tech and the cinematography of the original Star Wars, now, of course, known as A New Hope. Uh, so let's let's start there. And I guess where would you, if you're going to, uh, let's say, say indoctrinate somebody into uh, the, the, the cinematographic arts using Star Wars, 1977 Star Wars as your prism, where do you begin? What do you point to first? Is like this to me as a cinematographer is a pretty stunning example of the craft. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to start uh, chronologically in the release because because technology and Star Wars, is is hugely important in shaping the way the film industry has changed over the years. Right? Very much so. Star Wars is that um, whether it's VFX or camera or uh, aesthetics, Star Wars has shaped our industry. So I think that's a huge important part to start with. So A New Hope, um, I think the the element that really stands out to me is is when they're on Tatooine and when um, uh, Aunt Beru and Uncle Owen have just died and that shot of their their dead bodies is really stands out as like just an incredible cinematic shot and that's like in history that is the shot that kind of defines star wars in a little bit because Uh, it's like because it's like there's you're you're seeing like the war element right it's like there there's your war and death and like emotion and then he's left you know standing there you know, by himself. And so it's like he has to go on this journey. And so I think that in one shot, that kind of sums up all of Star Wars. Um, But it's just a beautiful shot of him, you know, on sort of the far uh, left of frame and then there on the right. And you just see this like open expanse, which Mm -hmm. is Tatooine, which is kind of also reminiscent of 
space. You know, it's just this open expanse. It's, and so it's, it's like a, like like how space is a sea of stars. It's a sea of sand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, yeah, yeah. And they say that there's you know there's more stars in our galaxy than there are grains of sand on Earth. But are there more stars <laughs> in our galaxy than there are grains of sand on Tatooine? That is that is a good question. And which has more grains of sand, Tatooine or Jakku? These are the say, important questions. I would say Tatooine. We need to. I don't care. <laughs> if, if you have an in with the Lucasfilm story group and one of them can tell us which planet has more sand, please tweet at us. <laughs> <laughs> we would like to know. But, uh, but yeah, like I, I like um, what, you're, what you're talking about, how like the single image can tell a story within itself. Right. Yeah. And you have Luke on Tatooine now, now alone, not just feeling alone, but literally being alone, having lost his aunt and uncle, his only family and standing yeah. in that open expanse and, and how that shot really enables you to assume his feeling, his perspective. Mm -hmm. I'm also a really big fan in that scene of when it cuts into the skeletons. And yeah. I don't know if it's Owen or Baru, but the one that's like bent over backwards, like, ah. <laughs> it's great. My favorite character in Star Wars is that skeleton. Is that skeleton. Yeah. I, it's a shame we didn't now, see that, that skeleton. That doesn't have a name, more, does you know? it? We, we, we just talked about all the names, you know, that no one's named that, <laughs> that, that prop. It's a good point. Like, where's the expanded universe? Like, I get that it's well, it's either Luke's aunt or uncle, but where's the expanded universe story yeah. where it's like the one either Owen or Baru is like the new Terminator in Dark Fate, where like his inside skeleton can mm -hmm. step outside of him and operate independently. It's like that, and the skeleton's name is I don't know Dave or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, D all right, Dave Spacebones. I thought this was gonna go like. What, where's the expanded universe story where they're doing an autopsy and discover which one was which? And, you know, uh, we really get into the science of, of like, mortician, more, more studies in, in Star Wars. But you're like, nah, brah. That skeleton is its own thing. And Aunt Brew is running around doing her own thing. <laughs> she escaped the Empire and was like, fuck my nephew. <laughs> That's true. Like, Aunt Brew is still out there and she left her skeleton behind. To right. the authorities. I like that that sort of shows, just the two of you, shows like the two definitions of a Star Wars fan, you know? Like you can take <laughs> it like different ways, like a little more, like you're like, no, it's like it has to be about like precise, you know, like history. And then you can also just say, you know, these are just, these are stories and we can just take it however we want. <laughs> I'm just know? thinking, how do we generate a 500 issue comic book series out of the skeleton? <laughs> And so I'm just trying to spin story. Um, all right, that's but, a great idea. But so, um, would you say, like, when you were when you were younger, would you say you felt particularly impacted by that particular moment in that way? And not in that way. I don't think when I was younger, I, I thinking about the skeleton operating. Yeah, I just had this, you know, visceral sense of like, wow, this is impactful. Right. And it's like this has meaning to me, but I I couldn't verbalize it, you know, at the time. So, all right, so take us, yeah, what's it? Take so, us to the next. So, I think th this is also a good example. This shot in particular is a good example of um, what uh, Gilbert Taylor is the name of the DP that shot uh, the first, the original Star Wars movie. DP is um, director of photography director if you're photography. listening and you don't know. Cinematographer, yeah. DOP if you're British. The one, the one who they, takes the pictures, the movie. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, Gilbert Taylor is uh, is actually not 
uh, George Lucas's first choice. Okay. He wanted another guy by the name of Jeffrey uh, Unsworth, um, who is a cinematographer that shot 2001 A Space Odyssey. He, George Lucas, I guess, wanted more of a, um, a documentary kind of feel to Star Wars, which is not at all like what we really think of it as. We think of Star Wars as this like classic Hollywood, like with the John Williams score. It's it's very, uh, I wouldn't say clean cut, but it's very like utilitarian kind of shots, and it's very um, classic Hollywood lighting. You know, like big, you know, big lights, um, shadows, and and this is what Gil, um, Gilbert Taylor brought to Star Wars. Um, I think that. Apparently, uh, Gilbert Taylor um, came in because uh, Jeffrey Unsworth was not available at the time. So, okay. uh, Gilbert Taylor shot things like uh, Dr. Strangelove and A Hard Day's Night. So, there were elements where George Lucas said, okay, if I can't have you know my first choice, um, Gilbert Taylor may be able to bring those elements to the film. Get me the guy who shot the Beatles running around. That's right. Yeah, yeah. it was very... Is, is very um, uh, documentarian yeah right so so i think george was like okay this is a good safe choice um but it turns out that gilbert taylor had very specific uh beliefs in how he felt this this film should be shot and i think there's like a uh there's a sort of a, a story where you know george says oh let's you know move this light over here or you know put the camera down low and let's get this big shot and gilbert taylor says you know, listen, kid, like, this is, let me tell you how this, this is supposed to run. And George <laughs> Lucas is sort of like, oh, like, okay. Do you think um, that was the last time anyone said, listen, kid, yeah. George Lucas? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think so, yes. Like, um, if you tried that shit now, he'd go to his phone, tap a couple <laughs> buttons, you'd be like, what, what's going on, Mr. Lucas? He'd be like, I just bought you. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, um... You know, George, uh, definitely you guys have seen THX 1138. A long time ago, but yeah, it's a very art house kind of film. Yeah. Um, Very different feel. And I think, you know, the fact that that Gilbert Taylor sort of made this the style definitely positioned Star Wars into the way that it currently is. And it wasn't for, you know, his choices. Star Wars would look very different. And, I, you know, we can debate whether that's good or bad. Right. You know, yeah. Um, the way you describe it makes me think of Starship Troopers. How that kind of has a documentary feel yeah, to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Would Star Wars have been as, you know, as famous as it is today? If, if you know, there's so many factors that go into it, and I think that shows that, you know, the the reason Star Wars did so well, I believe, is because there were so many voices saying, "No, this is how this element should be. This is how this element should be," and so I think. You know, which we'll get into the prequels later, where George had total control. You know, the original trilogy is made up of so many different voices. Yes, um, and I think that's why it it was such a success. Yeah, it's 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 interesting too that you talk about how the DP that they ultimately went with was not the first choice, right? Like they ended up with what they ended up with because of essentially a limitation that they had to work around. And that in large part is the story of the making of Star Wars. It's George Lucas had all of these big, crazy, uh, ephemeral, ethereal, mythological ideas and trying to get it into the type of shape that would actually be digestible in a two-hour movie 
required him to sacrifice quite a bit, compromise quite a bit of other things. And then you had a lot of people like like Marshall Lucas, his wife, for example, going into the edit and being like, OK, yep. tweak that, move this around, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't get the movie that we get without this big series of tweaks and compromises, mm-hmm. which is a sort of fascinating. I mean, it's a fascinating commentary on how film is made in general. Right. Like and I do think Lucas and it's definitely true when you arrive at the prequels, Lucas is uh, thought of. Uh, the way we think of auteurs in large part, Mm -hmm. right? But I think Star Wars in particular sort of proves the lie in the auteur theory, right? Because even though it's very much George Lucas's baby, George Lucas alone, left to his own devices, that movie would not look anything like the movie that we know and love. Yeah. So take us to the next big moment for you in the movie. Well, I think... um... Part of what what has fascinated me is then, you know, diving deeper into the specifics. Um, So uh, A New Hope was actually shot on uh, Panavision Panaflex cameras um, with C-series lenses, which are like from the 70s. Um, They're very warm, very, uh, today we would would call them very vintage lenses, but they, there's a lot of things that lenses can do, um, certainly in that time frame where there are elements and coatings on lenses that um that uh that actually we are illegal to do today so there are certain things that um wait wait you can't you can't slide past that wait, yeah. explain that to me yeah so so back in the day you could use certain elements um like lead or you could use certain things that are illegal today uh to use and so uh, panavision um one of the great things that we do have is these legacy optics that are lenses that that have certain looks to them that we can't duplicate today, um, and so uh, we can. We'll talk. I can talk later when we get to the Force Awakens and other movies uh, where they had to look back at these old lenses to to recreate some of these aesthetics from the original trilogy. Hmm. Um, so, uh, and then the other thing I want to mention is also the film stock that they used. Um, on uh, A New Hope, they used what's called 100, 100T 5247 um, is the type of uh, film emulsion that they used. And so Kodak, um, these are all Kodak film stocks. Um, and just like, you know, cameras get better and better, you know, there's there was, uh, you know, HD and then 2K and then, um, you know, 8K now. Uh, Film stocks had a similar, although that has to do with resolution, they, ha- they, they also um, have increments in technology where they get, they get better, they can see into dark, into blacks better, they can see uh, more of the highlights. So there is advances in the film technology, um, and so this has changed through the uh, Star Wars, you know, over 40 years, this has also changed, you know, the quality of... Um, a film shot, you know, in the seventies versus, you know, today, even if it's shot on film. You you were just talking about advancements in picture resolution, right? Uh, so, are you able to explain uh, to somebody like like me who understands this stuff but doesn't totally understand this stuff? What is the difference between, say, two K, four K, eight K? Other than the more Ks you have, it looks prettier. <laughs> Why is that? Why, why is that? Why well, is the, it that the, the reason, more Ks you have, the prettier it looks? Yeah, people, a lot of times people talk about the number of Ks being the sharper the image is going to look. 
Um, in fact, that's actually um, sort of the opposite because uh, if you think about um, if you think about if you you just have four pixels, so a k a k represents how many pixels um, is in an image, um, and pixels are sort of the 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 squares that make up the image. So your screen is made up a bunch of uh, squares that light up and they're you know red green or blue and they affect um, the color that you're seeing and so when you have um, a thousand across you know uh, they're so small that you can't see individuals um, but uh, but that's what makes up your picture and so um, the more the more pixels you have you can't you, there is actually um, your ability your eye is able to see um, say HD you can kind of see uh, each pixel in the sense that images are going to look blocky okay um, and so blocky is sometimes confused with sharpness so if an image is more blocky it, it looks sharper and so in HD uh, compared to um, SD your images were looking uh, sharper in the sense that you were seeing blocks when you get to something like 8k these pixels are so small that they actually make the image look more round so if you think about just four uh, four pixels you can see it's a square and if you if you have a, a circle that's made up of pixels where you can see each square your square isn't going to really look like a square right it's going to look like a jagged circle okay um did I say square? I meant to a say circle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you if you think about um, a circle in a lower resolution scenario, the circle is going to look like a jagged circle because you're going to see the circles made up of squares. Right. Right. All right. Yeah. So it's basically like the difference between building something with cubics versus Legos. Yeah. In the way that like. If you're building something large scale with Legos, um, the larger it is, the the more of a like round cohesive thing it's going to appear to be. Where if, if you're building it with cubics, you can see the individual bricks and the the item itself won't be as like round or, or it'll just be like a lot of sharp edges because everything is built from individual squares. Correct. Yeah. So as you get higher resolutions, those squares are so small that you no longer notice those um, sort of stair steps as you go around the circle. You're just seeing a circle. So in fact, higher resolutions are going to provide softer images um, than a lower resolution would. All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a bunch of mushrooms, and you're going to tell me all of that again yeah. with special emphasis on circles made of squares. Okay. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> just listen to this podcast again. <laughs> um, so you were talking about the film getting better over time. Mm -hmm. um, so was it just what the film was made out of, or was it in the way that they processed it that improved it from generation to generation? Well, it's definitely both. Um, okay. I was I was specifically talking about sort of the film itself, the the uh, chemistry that makes up um, the celluloid. Yeah. Um, improves. Um, I don't know that I could talk specifically about the chemistry yeah. of celluloid but yes it, it it improves it has improved over time okay nice. uh just just like like i say just like digital technology is improving film stock um is certainly improving um and that's why i think that 
you know, Force Awakens was shot on film, but a lot of times it looks so clean and crisp, it almost looks like it was shot digitally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think then there are some people that say, well, then what's the point of, of shooting film versus digital if, if eventually it's all going to look the same? Um, so you could say you did. Yeah, that is it's a genuine yeah, a question that people have is like some people say, you know, there's no point in shooting film because we can make it look identical. But right. other people say, you know, no, there is a nostalgic element to shooting on film. Right. Yeah. There's also like a, a texture to it, right? When you're shooting yes. on film, yeah. there's a very specific grain that you you it's almost imperceptible but like you you can feel it in terms and of And so that. older stocks would have more more of that grain. So yeah. Um, you know, the original trilogy is going to have much more grain than the sequel trilogy, and that's why um, the sequel trilogy looks so much cleaner. Um, but a lot of digital shows now uh, actually put grain mm-hmm. on the digital content, so they, they're trying to emulate that they're Trying to lie to that us. Look. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the dressing up in false clothes. Yeah, well, you know, they know that's how you, you get that sense of warmth. It's what we grew up on. We like that grain. We're like, yeah, that's what makes it feel good. It's like uh, that, that's how I know it's art, and this is in fact good for me. Yeah. So, what were there vast improvements between Episode Four and when we get to uh, uh, Empire Strikes Back? Like in terms of, I know that Empire Strikes Back is uh, people will say it's quote unquote better shot just because they're doing a lot more experimental stuff. So, like, what would you say was the impetus for that transition? Um, it was actually shot on the same uh, f- same film stock uh, and actually the same camera, the Panaflex, Panavision Panaflex, and uh, C-Series lenses. So it was identical in terms of um, specifics. Okay. Um, but obviously, so in episode five, um, uh, uh, Peter, uh, I'm going to say this name wrong, but uh, Shusinski? Um, I believe it. Yeah, you nailed shot, it. Uh, shot Empire Strikes Back. Um, he did things like Rocky Horror Picture Show um, and, uh, you know, has his own aesthetic. So I think, you know, he brought, you know, a look and an eye to the film to make it, you know, its own its own look. And I think, personally, I think actually Empire is one of my favorite in terms of cinematography. Yeah. Um, what also benefits from having some of the best design work in any of these movies yeah. as well. Yeah, and actually, so the, the production designer of um, that movie was uh, Norman Reynolds. Okay. And um, actually, I, I want to jump back to A New Hope briefly. Okay. Um, there was one other thing that Gilbert Taylor did uh, in A New Hope where he, when they were on the Death Star, uh, a lot of that set was, um, was just gray walls. And so he actually would cut out sections of the walls and install a light uh, in the wall. And so the scene was lit almost with what we call practicals or lights that are within the scene nice. that help light the, light the scene. Um, so he kind of added to that, uh, that aesthetic as well. And I think developed kind of the, the, in terms of production design, he helped establish that aesthetic as well as as um, the production designer so i think the combination of a production designer and dp is it's extremely important absolutely their partnership is what what defines how a film looks and as a cinematographer my own perspective is like when i go shoot something you know 
I have to have somebody that I trust and that I like uh, doing production design. And that's like one of the first things I would ask is, who's the production designer? Who's, you know, who am I working with that's going to be doing set design or, uh, you know, depending on the level of production, you know, asking who is this person that's going to support me on, on the production design side. Right. Um, well, because you, you have to work in conjunction with each other to create the image, right? And you talk about both of these things are crucial to the look of the movie, which, of course, by extension, is utterly crucial to how the movie is making you feel Yeah. moment to moment. So, okay, so I guess I want to talk about Empire a little bit more uh, in large part because, you know, a, a lot of people say very, uh, very aggressively that Empire Strikes Back is sort of the pinnacle, the platonic ideal of what Star Wars can be i guess first of all where where do you come down like do you have a personal ranking like do you put empire up on the same pedestal that basically everybody else does yeah absolutely i mean uh, yeah empire is number one on my list for pretty much i like it also any list uh <laughs> that you're but so but together, so you yeah. you talked about like as, as part of your secret origin you talked about empire in spe- uh, most specifically yeah. speaking to you from a very very young age so i guess what what was it about Empire in particular, as opposed to, say, the first movie or Return of the Jedi? Um, well, I mean, it was the, it was, I don't, I guess it wasn't my first introduction. I mean, I, I, I assume I watched um, A New Hope first, but I just, yeah, I just, the, that cinematography, you know, them on Hoth um, just stands out as like, just ingrained in my brain is like this is star wars um, right. and and some of that you know in terms of in terms of cinematography i know that you know shooting a white background and characters on a white background is always kind of like a, a no-no because it's like you know you're going to overexpose and it's hard to get the dynamic range um dynamic range is sort of your white to your black um that that sort of that range mm-hmm. of of grays in between um that's always sort of a challenge. And so shooting um, in Norway where they shot uh, uh, during, apparently during like the biggest snowstorm in like Norway's history, they shot Empire. And so there's actually a a great story of like uh, the crew was inside the hotel. Um, Irvin Kirshner, who directed this, told this story um, uh, that the crew was all inside the hotel and they made Mark Hamill go out into the snow and he had to like, they were literally shooting outside the hotel's door and Mark Hamill goes out and he, he has to like crawl through. This is after he's, I'm not sure if it's before or after he's been attacked by the, um, the Wampa. The Wampa. Yeah. Uh, but he's, he's, he's outside and the rest of the crew is nice and toasty in the hotel. <laughs> um, Poor Mark. but, but, but yeah, shooting in, uh, that kind of environment is, is, was kind of a no, no in terms of cinematography. And so, um, that, scene and that choice is pushing boundaries of 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 cinematography well so how do you how do you execute something like that how do you work around all of the potential obstacles that lead people to say this is something you should not do if at all possible um you know i think it's just part of it is is just sheer you know like i'm just we're just gonna do it you know they're just like we're gonna make it work um and to also have something that, you know, people hadn't seen before or, uh, you know, I think the, the just pushing the boundaries of the technology and then helping, you know, the technology grow. I don't know if in this scenario, you know, I don't know if, you know, Kodak did anything specific or, or 
um, if that helped them, you know, evaluate, you know, new stocks of film. But, but I think, um, you know, anytime a production does something that's unique, you know, everybody else is kind of watching. So you've also been talking a little bit about the, the, not just the way that the technology has developed, but the way that across the original trilogy, there was a lot of uh, continuation of technology from one movie to the next. And like you were just talking about finding new ways to take the same technology and push it further. Right. So by the time we get to return of the Jedi, right? Like, do you feel like you see the same thing happening there or do you feel it's more of a lateral move? Yeah. Well, in, in Jedi, uh, they did use a different film stock. So they did start to, uh, you know, now, a lot of film stocks, it, it can be a choice. So you you might use an older film stock because you want, you know, that effect. So I don't know in this scenario, you know, do you, their specific choices on, on film stock, but just like lenses, film stocks could be, you know, a aesthetic choice. Um, so, you know, in Jedi, they used um, uh 5293 film stock um i don't know if that was because you know it's like it's a newer film stock and so they want it to be cleaner or if you know there was an aesthetic choice um in this case it's also a new dp um in the original trilogy each one was a new dp uh so in return of the jedi uh, a guy named alan uh hume not sure if i'm pronouncing that right either but he uh he came along yeah, that sounds right. I to hope me. so. Yeah, Feels we, good. you know, we. Yeah. Uh, he came along with a director, um, uh, Richard Marquand. Yes. And so, uh, what I what I thought I heard was the story with Richard Marquand was that um, the fact that George Lucas had done the, the the Star Wars classic Star Wars crawl and not done. Um, Traditionally, you would have title cards at the beginning of a movie, and it yes. would say, you know, uh, who the who the cinematographer was, the d- director, editor, all these title cards. Um, George Lucas chose not to do that, and in the the original movie, um, they kind of it was sort of a surprise. They kind of like the the um, the MPAA, um, who's kind of in control, and and also the Directors Guild of America. Um, they kind of let that slide because it's like, oh, that's our tradition is this is how you operate. And it was sort of random. And, you know, so they let that slide in, in Empire Strikes Back. When he did it again, he actually got fined um, by these organizations because he didn't have those names at the beginning of the movie. And didn't they try and argue at one point that because the his name is essentially the name of the company, Lucasfilm, having that at the front of the movie in a way counts as crediting himself up front and nobody else? I believe that was part of their Okay, argument. I haven't heard that one. Yeah, I, I want to say that could be totally apocryphal. That could be nonsense. But I, I recall reading that somewhere and that this argument was sort of what led Lucas to leave the DGA, no? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, this argument, yeah, is absolutely what what had um, Lucas leave the DGA. And and then what he he then couldn't do is get a director to um, to fill in uh, f- to, to, to direct ep- episode six. You know, he couldn't get someone because the DJ wouldn't allow him to. So he went to um, uh, sort of a sort of an unknown, you know, relatively unknown um, director, which was Richard Marquard, and and then Richard had his DP 
come along with him. And so this this happens a lot. You know, we, we'll talk about Brian Johnson and, and Steve Yedlin. You know, they're sort of together as uh, a team and they've worked on movies together. So this was the same situation where they had director DP came together. Um, but also like the, the Star Wars prequels, uh, there was some conflict, right? And so um, it sounds like George Lucas really stepped in and essentially directed a lot of... Um, Return of the Jedi. That's because, the vibe that I get. Yeah, yeah. It's like in interviews and stuff that I've that I've seen, nobody wants to say that George Lucas shadow directed the whole movie, but everybody is willing to say George was on set a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's interesting, you know, that people say, "Oh, well, they they have all these problems with the sequel trilogy and and with Solo and with Rogue One and all these things." Um, but it's like it actually had happened in the original trilogy too, you know. Right. They they had these same kind of issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in fact, um, uh, the the story goes, or at least I've I've heard, is that um, uh, Alan uh, Hume uh, didn't um, didn't like what was happening, and he actually left the project. And so uh, there's another DP that came on um, named uh, Alec Mills, and so Alec Mills. Uh, did a lot of like he did the speeder chase scene um, on, on Endor. Endor, and so he did a lot of the really cool stuff that 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 Jedi is known for. What was the? Do you know what the conflict was that led? I don't. The guy yeah, to I don't. So he's just like these little bears are dumb. Yeah, that's <laughs> I am why, too classy. No, no, for no. This. I think it had to do with the fact that, at least what I've sort of read in a couple different sites on the internet you know who knows but from what i've read it um it sounded like because george was coming in and saying to uh, richard marquard you know like this is how we're going to do Got things it. it was more of like politics that that sort of that so maybe he felt like yeah. lucas was stepping in to such a yeah. degree that they couldn't yeah. do the job they wanted to yeah. do. that makes sense um so return of the jedi has easily some of my favorite shots of the ships in any star wars movie um and i I referenced earlier in this conversation how odd i am especially in the original versions before they mask a lot of this stuff with cg when you're actually looking at the tangible models that you know instinctually you could reach out and touch they're small but you could reach out and touch them uh there's a shot in return of the jedi and it's of the the falcon i think maybe wedges x-wing and a couple of tie fighters chasing him and it's the shot that sort of starts, they fly into the frame, and you travel with the ships down into the tunnel, into the body of the Death Star. And that shot is honestly like one of the most magical things that I've ever seen in any movie whatsoever. Like, I, I play that, I want a gif of it that I could frame and just play on repeat on my wall all the time and stuff. Do you have moments like that specifically that sort of speak to you in that really direct, magical way from the original trilogy? And follow-up question, how do you feel about the special edition changes in that regard as well? Because a lot of those shots, a lot of those original elements were replaced with computer-generated imagery for the new releases and the versions that are now most commonly available. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, well, the special editions is definitely like a separate conversation of like, you know, how... I mean, to, to me, I, I kind of do understand George Lucas's view of, like, this is how I imagined it in my head, you know, and he wasn't able to do the things that he wanted to do. And that goes back to your 
concept of an auteur, you know, he it really wasn't he wasn't able to control everything that he wanted to. And in that respect, I understand why you want to go back and you want to make it how, you know, you plan for it to be. Um, but then it's like a lot of other people's work went into actually crafting how it was. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think maybe there's kind of a disconnect of like, well, you know, you, this is how George wanted it, but it's like, this is how it turned out. And this is what people were able to achieve. And so in that respect, I think having the, you know, original non-special edition, you know, is really powerful because it's like, this is what was made. Right. So is there a particular moment? Like, what is the, if you had to pick one, is there a standout moment from the original trilogy, any of the first three films, where if somebody were to ask you, sort of arbitrarily, out of nowhere, apropos of nothing, hey, what what is it about these movies that speaks to you through this prism, right? What is it about these movies that inspires you? Can you point to something that really makes you go, oh yeah, that, that I, I want to be able to do this, like, is there one scene, one sequence, one set of shots, or even one of what shot affected me as a filmmaker? Or? Something that really just feels like you're uh, you got a real personal connection to that moment. Like something that just every time you see it, because of whether it's shot composition or the way the elements are interacting with each other in the space, that just continues to this day to just make your heart sing. Mine is the teddy bear uh, picnic at the end of Jedi. <laughs> That's mine. And then the when teddy uh, bear picnic. yeah. <laughs> And then, uh, then we like pan over and see uh, a, a redeemed Darth Vader, and you're like, "Who's that old guy?" Yeah, <laughs> I like that. That's mine. You like? I like the shots of the ghosts because I can see through them. Yeah. And then when he turns into Hayden Christensen, and you're like, "Who's that guy?" <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's Colin's the one thing like, that I definitely right, don't he, like. He just jumped out of the boat, and I guess <laughs> I'm going to try and grab the oar and row to the shore now. For the most part, I don't have a problem with the special editions, but the one thing that I really do not like is that they put Hayden Christensen in there because it's like he should be the old version of Darth Vader. Like right. that's chronologically that makes sense. So it's like that's like that's. That's just fan service or just like that's just ridiculous. Well that's that, just let's that part try and, I, I don't let's try and like corral everything into one perfectly neat straight line, if possible, in a way that I feel sort of is is self defeating. The way I feel like yeah. a lot of the special edition changes are a little bit self defeating and as you pointed out earlier, it's other people's work that's being altered and even more oddly, the original Star Wars won I wanna say something like seven Academy Awards, uh, in technical categories. Those things that won Academy Awards are all of the elements that he went back and changed. And I find that baffling. But you know what? That's his prerogative. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I want to jump into the prequels a little bit because there was a long gap between when the last uh, episode, episode uh, six, aired. And, you know, there were a few years where we were getting re-releases with a bunch of different things added. But the technology had changed so much between the um, the Last Jedi and when we got the uh, Phantom Menace in 1999. So, uh, and I also feel like we got a, 
a lot of a transition to more digital photography, a lot of CG and things of that sort. So like, what was that transition like? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely, you know, it's well known that George Lucas wanted to wait until he had the ability to do the things that in the original trilogy he couldn't do, hence the special edition. Um, so he was waiting until the technology, digital technology and also CGI, was was at a point where he could feel like he could do what he truly imagined. When I can put Jabba the Hutt in the first movie, I know I'm ready to make the next movie. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So some of those technologies um, was the advents of digital cameras, right? Um, so Phantom Menace uh, was a mixture um, of film and, and digital, uh, mostly film. Um, they actually used a Ariflex, a 435 camera, and a Sony uh, H HDC 750, which is very early. Um, I don't think there was too much of uh of the film shot in that it was it was mostly film um and uh and newer film stocks like like we just talked about um so the dp uh of actually all three uh of the the prequels uh was um david tatterstall uh who george lucas knew from actually the young indiana jones oh all right yeah so he i think this also like we talked about you know george had uh, so many different voices in the originals, he really wanted to sort of bring in his crew and say, okay, these are my core crew people, these are who I trust, and these are who I can uh, make sure are sort of going in the direction that I want to go. So right. I think that, and that is why, you know, uh, you know, the prequels have a feeling of, of the Artur, like, you know, this is his 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 baby and you know it wasn't really diverging from that and i think that's why in some respects kind of hurt the the trilogy because um there weren't other voices saying well let's do this let's he, try maybe this needed someone to give notes there's that very yeah. famous slash infamous documentary from the uh, original phantom menace dvd release i'm sure you can find mm -hmm. it online but a, a lot of scenes all fly on the wall stuff and so many little bits of lucas talking and kind of walking everybody in the room through what he intends to do and everybody in the room not saying anything but looking like they really wonder if they oughta <laughs> yeah yeah um and in terms of some specifics, uh, uh, these were this was the first one. Um, Phantom Menace was actually shot on Hawk C series, so this is uh, not Panavision glass, um, uh, but it's uh, uh, a company called Hawk. Okay. And so they are very similar. Their C series is is seventies, also um, older glass uh, that has similar kind of warm characteristics that the Panavision C series would have had as well. Are you? Uh, can you? So they're uh, elaborate fairly, on that a little bit. They're fairly uh, matching in terms of uh, lens quality. Okay. Um, again, this only works and applies to the fact that they were shooting film. Um, what gets really interesting is uh, when we get to Attack of the Clones, they switched over entirely to uh, Sony Cine Alti F900 cameras. Okay. Um, which uh, really is like the first... Uh, kind of modern uh, cinema grade digital camera um, and the Cine Alti line, Cine Alta line that uh, Sony came out with is actually still alive today. Uh, the Sony Venice camera, which um, I think the most 
the biggest film recently would be the new um, uh, Top Gun movie. Was oh, okay, shot, it's Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, yeah, it was shot uh, Sony Venice. So that's kind of their iteration of the same camera. Uh, obviously, it's it's progressed, it's changed a lot, um, but it's sort of the same line that Sony Sony has. And wasn't uh, if I'm not mistaken, please correct me if I'm wrong on this, but wasn't Attack of the Clones maybe the first? movie uh, certainly of that kind of that stature and scale shot entirely in digital yeah yeah i believe it was yeah and which means in terms of lenses panavision actually stepped back in um and we created lenses specifically for digital uh this was the first time we had ever done this there there's some uh uh engineering um changes that have to be made for digital lenses that have to do with uh, uh basically how far the the camera sensor is versus the the glass of the lens Mm -hmm. Um, so we were able to engineer some specific lenses for um, attack of the clones which then sort of uh, helped uh, continue a a very famous lane line of lenses called the panavision primos Um, and so uh, this group of lenses is uh, is uh, very well known as the digital a specifically digital lens. So what, what is the process essentially of developing a new type of lens for digital versus film? And how, how in your perception does that change account for what some consider to be the jarring aesthetic differences between Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones? I think that's really to do with the camera um, in this scenario. Um, uh on a film camera, we have they shoot 35, right? Mm-hmm. 35 is is the size of the um, film celluloid, and uh, right now there's a big push into large format optics, which is actually even larger uh, sensor size or um, size of uh, the uh, the celluloid than 35. So as you increase the size of the sensor, you get um, different magnification and different depth of field. And so magnification and depth of field is sort of very much a, a, an effect that the, the viewer may not notice, but is going to look very different. Um, and so um, on the F900s, uh, it's a much smaller size sensor. Um, so it's going to be uh, shallower depth of field, which means uh, you're going to have less, the focus is going to look like uh, you can see more into um, the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see the foreground and background in focus, kind of a, an effect. Um, whereas large format is the opposite, where like, you know, it's it's extremely out of focus in the background, and only the subject in the foreground is in focus. These I'm, I'm kind of dumbing it down, but um, uh, that would be your depth of field change, and your magnification change would be um, uh, how much uh, of the background you can see. So. Um, there's a difference between field of view and magnification. Field of view is more of like, um, you know, how if you're a wide, medium, or close. But magnification has to do with how much of the background um, is able to be seen behind the subject. Um, so uh, you could have, let's say you have a medium shot that's sort of um, person's waist to the top of their head. Um, Field of view would be the same uh, if you're on uh, these different size sensors or um, uh, film size, but 
you may see more in the background or less in the background depending on the size of the sensor. Um, so the fact that the F900 is a very small sensor due to the technology of the time, um, it's going to have, like I say, less depth of field and, um, and, and a, a smaller magnification effect uh, than film would have. Um, so I think that's where the subtle change uh, would be seen um, in uh, the Phantom Menace versus Attack of the Clones. Okay. And so between Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, obviously a couple years have elapsed. Obviously, we've continued to refine the technology. Do you feel, because I feel as an audience member, that even though Revenge of the Sith very clearly also shot digitally, mm -hmm. feels a little bit more settled visually and developed visually than Attack of the Clones does? Is there a particular, is there a particular factor that you feel accounts for that? Uh, well, I believe those two were shot on the same camera and uh, same lenses, so um, I think that would be that would be like the CGI element right. of you know they're getting better at at the CGI element, um, and so that could that could be why you know you're seeing more of a, uh, a more solidified look of Revenge of the Sith because they've had more time to refine that aspect of it. That makes sense. So. You've talked a lot about the technical processes that inform the aesthetics of both the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy. When you were first discovering the prequels, when you got through that trilogy, very broadly, how did you feel about the result, the end result, versus the end result of those processes in the original trilogy? I mean, when I first saw the the prequel trilogy, you know, I think obviously I, I didn't I didn't know anything about you know digital cameras or like verse you know like what is the difference between film and digital and right and cgi i mean obviously you know you you notice that they're okay this does look a little different you know um but i think at the time you know it's just like this is the future this is this is kind of how things are changing and so you don't really think of it as i didn't think of it as a bad thing i didn't think of it as like this is you know Oh no! What's happening to you know cinema? You know, I just thought right. This you weren't like they the, ruined my childhood. Yeah, yeah, this is this is the future, and 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 I, you know, Star Wars means so much to me. Really, not because of the like cinematography and the 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 filmmaking side. I mean, I Star Wars. Ultimately, I think I fell in love with because of the story and like where it takes you. And so that's why I do like I read, you know, some of the Star Wars books and right. I read, you know, I, I, I am more into the, the story side of it um, as Star Wars. Now, I learn I've learned so much from the behind the scenes stuff that right. then has affected, you know, my interests and my understanding of of, of the film industry. Right. Um, so I use that as a tool to help me, you know, in my my professional life. But. But Star Wars is really to me about the the story and like where it takes you and 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 the feeling that you get from exploring these these planets and these storylines and these characters. Well, so speaking of story and where it takes you, now after the prequels come out, we are in a window of time where there's no Star Wars for about a decade. But in that window, 
your story takes you pretty decisively in the direction of film and cinematography in particular. So before we get to the present and the sequel trilogy, I guess in this window, what was that part of that journey like for you? What what was that? Was there a, a moment? Was there a was there a time? What was the point of entry to? Okay, I'm gonna pick up a camera and do this professionally. Well, I mean, it started before Star Wars for me. I mean, I well, not before before I had seen Star Wars. Uh, I was I was making little short films, right? So, you know, I think this is. It's Star Wars has helped then, you know, define uh, things like learning about digital f photography and learning about um, uh, aspect ratios. I remember um, when I was when I first bought the DVD uh, version of of both the original trilogy and then the prequel trilogy. I remember distinctly learning that I, I wanted to get the widescreen version mm -hmm. versus the full screen version. And so I think that was like one of the first very technical things that I learned was like, well, what is the difference? Why, are, why is it important to see the full image? Um, and so I think that out of, out of all like, um, you know, learning about photography, that was one of the first things that I learned specifics about filmmaking right. was through Star Wars. So that brings us to near the present on our timeline, right? So now you're working at Panavision, you're doing this stuff uh, professionally, and the sequel trilogy starts to come out. So you, as a lifelong Star Wars fan who is now working directly and frequently with the technology that, that enables us to see these moving pictures, what struck you about the aesthetics of force awakens when you saw it and what do you feel is most striking to you about the general aesthetics of the sequel trilogy films overall well having having then gone to film school and understanding uh how how digital is different from film and how you know starting to see the aesthetics of the original trilogy and the grain that we talked about and uh you know, the CGI elements that when I was younger, I was like, I don't care. It's cool. It's fun. Right. You know, now I start to understand this stuff. And to be honest, I thought The Force Awakens was was too clean and was a different aesthetic than the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy. Mm. You know, they, they did try. So they did shoot film. They shot um, uh, uh, Panavision um uh, Millennium XL2 film cameras um, with the same lenses, actually, some of the exact same lenses that uh, the original trilogy shot. I remember you were telling me, I think, when we, we got together recently, and you were telling me about that in particular, and you were talking to me about specific lenses that were chosen for specific sequences based on how those lenses were utilized in the original movie. Yeah, yeah, I believe that uh, Dan Mendel is the name of the cinematographer that shot... Um, uh, the Force Awakens, and he also shot Rise of Skywalker, um, and uh, he he did want to have specific choices of saying, you know, this lens will uh, will be used for the the good guys, and this lens will or not a specific lens, but a series of lenses will be used. The C series lenses versus um, the uh, Primo anamorphics, which are much more of like a cleaner looking anamorphic lens. Um, 
uh, would be used for the bad guys. So they would the lens choice would help uh, would help give an aesthetic to a certain character. Um, and so I think that's that is the type of filmmaking that I, I really enjoy and, and want to emulate um, is is using cinematography to really help tell the story. Right. Um, and I think Dan Mandel has definitely got that an eye for that and, and wants to um, try to achieve those those effects. Um, okay, so then if you because we're, we're going to bring this in for a landing pretty soon because we're running out of movies. Um, actually, you know what? I guess sidebar, since there are there are non-saga Star Wars films, do you have any particular thoughts about the general aesthetics of either Rogue One or Solo? Yeah, I think that... Um, I think Rogue One is, is the film that is like, that is what Star Wars should look like to me. Yeah. Um, that is definitely... That was shot digitally... Um, was shot on Alexa 65 and Panavision uh, Ultra Panatars, uh, which are um, the Ultra Panatars is a is a really cool story actually of um, Quentin Tarantino that came into Panavision um, and he saw these lenses which were from the 50s from like the Ben Hur that shot Ben Hur yeah. and they were actually in a case you know just like a, here's you know history of you know our lenses and um, Quentin Tarantino and his DP. Um, uh, came in and said, can we shoot on those? And we're like, sure. Uh, and they're like, how much lead do you want to be exposed to? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly. That's what we said. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, we got Panavision got them ready and, and, um, and, uh, and so they shot hateful eight on those lenses. Nice. Um, Very and nice. then, I think it was directly from Hateful Eight, then they went to Rogue One. And so, you know, having this sort of these older lenses. So wait, you're saying it's not just the same type of lens, but literally the same lenses shot both movies? Yeah, there's only, yeah, there's only a few of those, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the type, that's the, well, earlier, that's the type of stuff I'm talking about. That yeah. I just like, give me a bag of that and let yeah. me sit on the couch and eat it. Yeah. Um, well, the older lenses, yeah, there's not necessarily that many sets, so they they have to shoot the, literally the same lenses because there's not that makes many. It, cause, right, like who, even Quentin Tarantino, like who's he going to turn to to be like, make me an old lens with a ton of lead in it? Yeah. <laughs> like, no. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you ask us that? Um, so uh, I, I agree. I, I'm a big fan of the general aesthetic of Rogue One, and it, it does capture – it captures an energy that almost feels to me not even necessarily of the original movie, but more of the feeling I got playing around in the expanded universe. Something yeah. about the aesthetic and the general look of that movie evokes that feeling. Really yeah, it's well. it's not just the cinematography. Just like we talked about, the production design is, again, as a cinematographer, like if I don't have a good production design, then it's like I don't have something good to shoot. Even if the lighting, my lighting is perfect and it's, you know, my eye is incredible. It's like if I don't have something physically there to shoot, then it's like you, you can't make good pictures. So the two are so important. And I think Rogue One had both Greg Frazier, who shot Rogue One, and the production design on that movie is like precisely what Star Wars should look like. And I think they just achieved that to a T. Um, and in fact, uh, Greg Frazier is also the one that established the... Um, 
the look of the Mandalorian as well. So they brought him back to do the Mandalorian, um, and he did a couple episodes, and then I think uh, uh, another guy named uh, Baz. Uh, uh, I'm gonna say this okay. name wrong again too, but um, Iden. Um, he uh, he shot uh, the rest of Mandalorian. So those those two those two stories um, are are similar looks, and you can tell. And I think that to me is what Star Wars really should look like. Nice. Okay, and how does that compare to uh, now where we finally caught up to Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi? Um, for me, like say what you will, story wise, I still feel like it's a very like a very colorful uh vibrant movie yeah i think uh so that was uh ryan johnson and steve yedlin um shot that movie i think that the two of them are i sounds like are like best best buds kind of thing and they work together really closely um and uh and uh i think they did a great job of of achieving the look of uh the force awakens so i think they did a good job of like emulating that look um which I think has a different look to it than than the original trilogy or the prequel trilogy. It's its own style, which right. which is good. Um, you know that they're they're giving it their own look, but you know, I, like I said, I think Rogue One really nails the to me the look that Star Wars should have. All right. Okay. And Solo, I think Solo is uh, another one shot by Bradford Young. Um, uh, it's also. Uh, was shot digitally, Alexa 65, um, with uh, airy lenses. Um, it has, it, it to me, the, the lenses are less, uh, they have less character in that one. Um, I think that's more about his lighting choices. You know, he's, Bradford Young is, is all about uh, practicals and just like using you, you, again, this is again, going back to the, the production designer. It's like, they set the scene. They have the lights in the scene, mm-hmm. and that's it. There's no. You're not putting in big movie lights. You're you're using what's in the scene, and you're shooting that. Right. Um, and so that can be a, a really powerful effect. Which is actually goes back to uh, Gilbert Taylor in the original one, where he was putting the lenses in the scene. The walls. And yeah. so it's like that's you know I think that you know. That aesthetic is carried through then to the newer films, which is very cool. Oh, like and that. and actually is a very popular thing just in cinema right now is to use practicals. It's it's less you know Roger Deakins does this a lot is like you know just using what's in the scene. You're not adding all these movie lights, and so that can have like a very subtle, um, very realistic look to it, which maybe also goes back to George's idea of a documentary style. So maybe. You know, the documentary style is achieved not through the use of like handheld camera or something that you think of documentaries, but maybe it's the lighting that helps achieve that look. So, so I don't know. I just thought of it, thought of this, but it's sort of like he is getting kind of the aesthetic that he that he wanted. I I really appreciate how you brought that entire thing full circle. That one of the strongest arguments I have ever heard for cinematographer as storyteller. <laughs> you just you brought us all the way back. You tied nice, a nice, nice beautiful little bow on it. And it's like it's like you're getting you're getting towards the end of the story. It's like I hope there's a point. What was this all for? Yeah. Oh, oh well masterful. <laughs> this was it's like the, the the finale of Knives Out again, but it's happening in front of me. Oh <laughs> um well uh 
thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing you all guys. your yeah, knowledge and expertise. Um, do you have anything to plug before we head out? Oh, <laughs> no, <not really>. okay. <laughs> Where can people Just find movies. you? Um, I'm on uh, Instagram at cmac106. Um, I, I will say, uh, Colin, you and I have worked together a few times. There are some shorts that we made with our good friend Brian Andres that you can see online. Um, you can see uh, plenty of uh, examples of Colin's work there, and you can also see me doing goofy bullshit. Um, and I'm sure like there are places where people can pull up examples yeah. of your work, right? Yeah, I have a website. It's colinpmcdonald.com. Um, it's a little bit older. I haven't updated in a while, but... but uh... Well, you go, you go check yeah. out his, his business yeah. over there or just hang out around the Panavision building. That's right. Until <laughs> That's Colin right. walks to his car. <laughs> yeah. That's right. But don't follow him to his car. <laughs> uh, keep your distance. You don't know him. That's right. You don't know what I might do. <laughs> um, but if you want to follow Lex to his car... Um, you have to start on social media. Where can they find you? Yeah, I guess you could you could try and bait me into revealing my location on Twitter or Instagram at the Lex Michael. Nice. Uh, and you can stay away from me, but live at a distance <laughs> on Twitter at Tari J T A R I J A Y. But most importantly, you can find this podcast on Twitter at Missing Outcast. That's M I S S I N G O U T C A S T. Um, once again, I'd like to thank you, Colin, for joining us. This has been a really fun conversation. Uh, I hope I everyone enjoyed it. <laughs> thank you, guys. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah. Um, so make sure to follow Colin. Make sure to follow us. Uh, and make sure to have a wonderful holiday. We're in the midst of Hanukkah. Uh, today, as of this launch, is Christmas Eve. So if you celebrate that, have a great Christmas Eve. Um, and if you are all about that Kwanzaa shit, yo, 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 we start in a couple days. Let's light some candles, my dude. Um, but until then, this has been the retrospective that's introspective. And now you have a new perspective that 15 years from now, we're going to come back and clutter up with a bunch of CG dobacks. Hell yeah. McClunky. <laughs>